0: text today that we're going through is John 1, 14 through 18, so if you want to open up your Bibles, that's the passage that we're going to be studying, Um, and we'll just start there. Uh, It reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So uh, this is the largest passion, passage of scripture that I preached through. I, I usually just go one verse at a time, but I thought that the whole principium of this text um, was, needed to be preached together. Um, and I have a kind of a large task before us because um, I have a month between sermons, so I just think for a month about this text. And so there is so much in this text um, that I had to choose one thing and, and stick with it. So I developed that, um, and it's, I titled this sermon, uh, The Unique Glory of Christ, Full of Grace and Truth, and if you remember back in December, I preached on John 1.14, on the Incarnation, um, and uh, I, I really um, tried to hone in on what the idea of the Incarnation was, and that was God becoming man. And um, he came down and saved us, and today I'm really going to focus on, um, we have seen his glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, if you speak to your average atheist on the street, what are some of the responses you might hear? Some of them might have uh, thoughtful arguments to banter back and forth, but more often than not, uh, what you'll find is that the reasoning for why they could not and would not believe in God has to do with how they believe God is currently governing the universe. They'll say things like, if God was real, why did my mother die? Or my child die? Or put in person X here, why did this person have to die at this time in my life? Why did my spouse get cancer? Or after having spent my whole life building a career, why was it stolen away from me? Or uh, all these questions of why, God, didn't you do this for me? Basically fill in any bad or evil thing, and because that thing exists, therefore that somehow means God doesn't exist or he's impotent, or he's evil. That isn't a new problem that unbelievers present. It's ancient. It's, it was Adam and Eve's first escape plan from judgment. Blame God for the evil that happens and the evil you've done, and you will be saved. Accept no responsibility for your actions. Consider not the evil that your own hands have done. Eyes have reveled in. Mouth has delighted to speak. Ears were pleased to hear. Blame God so you can deny his existence and go on your merry way, all the while your fig leaves are trailing behind you. If God is culpable, he's a man just like you and I. And what right does any man have to say about any other man's life? We're all sovereign agents. That's the atheist's plea. It's the desperate sinner's hopeful plea in a godless universe that is a lie. I don't need to do X for God because he has not done Y for me. I don't need to stop lying. God hasn't made it easy for me to tell the truth. I don't need to stop stealing. God hasn't made me rich or even given enough money. I don't need to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. He hasn't presented himself to me in a way that meets my exact needs and expectations for who I want God to be. I will not trust in Yahweh because He is not the idol I want Him to be. Now, I don't want that to be a straw man. Go speak to atheists. That's what they say. Now, what if God isn't actually deficient to your standard of moral rule, but far exceeds it? How would we determine such a thing? How would we know? If we want to know why God does what he's doing, we need to consider his ultimate goal. Uh, It will help us understand why God's providences seems so opposed to what he's told us in his word at times. If you know that a person's goal is to build a hundred-story skyscraper, you'll be less confused and alarmed when a building explodes in the middle of Manhattan. Instead of some heinous terrorist attack full of malice and evil, you'd know it's just the demolition phase of a construction site. So what is God's ultimate goal that we may not misjudge all his works? There are many verses that I'd like for us to walk through, but I think our controlling verses to know God's ultimate goal, and this will help illuminate the passage that we're in today, is Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not a silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Did you hear that? Why are men and women going through the furnace of affliction? For the sake of God's glory. For the sake of his name. So that he should be praised. Do you not understand that if you are searching for a purpose in the universe, it is here? That in this church, in a church where you worship God, you are serving the highest purpose for which you exist? That if God's purpose is to get his glory, when you give him glory in this place or anywhere in the world, you are meeting what it means to be a human? That's foundational. Now, is this a consistent theme or is this only in Isaiah? It's everywhere. Look at Exodus seven five five. The Egyptian shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God destroyed the Egyptians and saved the Israelites, not primarily for the Israelites, but for the glory of his own name. Ezekiel thirty-six, nineteen through twenty-one. By the way, Ezekiel alone references the sake of his own name and the sake of his own glory seventy times. Seventy times. 19 through 21 in chapter 36, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations wherever they went. Daniel 9:19 9, O oh Lord hear O oh Lord forgive O oh Lord pay attention and act delay not for your own sake O oh my God because your city and your people are called by your name This is in Old Testament only. This is in Ephesians 1, 5 through 7. Having predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he bestowed on us in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. God's highest goal is his own self-exaltation. Lifting up his name because it's how you and I receive good. It is how you and I receive goodness in this life is the higher that God exalts himself. The more you're going to see the good that he's done for you in Christ Jesus. That he may be known, that for his own namesake he saves and rescues, and it is to the praise of his glorious grace that he predestined us to this salvation. God's purpose in doing anything at all is for his glory. This is good for us. Consider London Baptist Confession of Faith, one. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Or as Romans 8.28 puts it, and we know all things work together for the good of those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. And what is God's purpose? To glorify his name. To make himself look great. All things work for your good if you love him and if he has called you to glorify him. Because there is nothing that is going to get in the way of God making sure he gets his own glory in your life if you call yourself a Christian. There's nothing. Nothing at all, that will get in the way because God is God and everything else is not. God's purpose is to glorify himself. And the way that God does that is by doing good to his creatures. To give us our highest act which we can perform, which I've already said, to worship and glorify him. So, why do atheists, unbelievers, weak Christians, maybe you, and sometimes I, look around at the world and see all this sin and evil going on. And we fall into that same defense that Adam and Eve did, blaming God for the circumstances of our life. Why is my life the way that it is? I'm unhappy with it. It's because you've looked at the world instead of looking to Christ. When we view God in this blame-worthy manner, who gets put in the place of God? God remains seated on the throne, but the denouncer for a time thinks he sits there. The atheists and our own atheistic thoughts have us start living in such a way as if the whole course of the cosmos rests upon our greatest efforts. This is works righteousness. The unbeliever attempts to justify their existence with their works, and the believer tries to justify their place before God with what they do. Why? Why? If I believe that I would be happy if God just did what I wanted, that means that if I can somehow manipulate God into doing my will by some means, whether that be religious pharisaism or secular workaholism, I'll finally receive what I believe I deserve, which is the life I've always dreamed of. I was listening to a podcast between two very intelligent men. One of them was a mathematician, the other was a clinical psychologist, and they were using the Bible as a way to understand how the world works. Neither of them Christian, but both believed in the veracity of the Bible's ancient applicability. They were discussing Cain and Abel, and how Cain was cursed because he failed to make the proper sacrifices. And their conclusion was, if you want to be successful in life, you have to make the right sacrifices. So the proverbial God will bless you. And I go... Abel made the right sacrifices and he was murdered. It's right before our very eyes how much works righteousness doesn't mean a single thing. You can't earn anything from God. And the world is so blind to this fact they're going to look at the text directly in the face and not read it properly at all. It's mind-boggling. Riches and power in this life will never Guarantee that God's favor rests on anyone. All of your works' righteousness are filthy rags, and all of the riches that you ever worked so hard for will burn in the hands of another man after you've died and God ended the world. Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust decay, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The problem is so dire. Not because you just can't stop the big sins in your life. It's that all you've ever done from the very first breath you've ever taken is sin. There's nothing good that you've done apart from Christ. All you've ever done is rebel and sin. And any good thing that looks good apart from Christ is just you trying to exalt yourself. It's not that you just have a small problem managing your finances, or maybe you drink a little bit too much on Tuesdays at happy hour, or you let a few curse words slip from your mouth on any given day. It's that if you got what you wanted in your sinful heart of hearts, you would destroy God forever and set yourself up in his place. We think we're wiser than God, better than God, more moral than God. How dare we? How dare we? What you don't recognize is that the compulsion to blame God for evil is the same sinful compulsion to be on the throne of the world. Is also at the same exact time the compulsion to murder everyone and destroy everything. If you were in the place of God and the desires of your heart were enlarged to have sway over the whole universe in an instant thing, everything would be utterly annihilated because of the hatred and sin you have in your heart. Right? You don't get to have the goodness that God has. You don't even get to have any of the principles around that God has if you were in the place of God. At the time that you are blaming him for evil, you are using everything he's given you to denounce him and deny him and rebel against him. And if God puts you in his place for an instant, everything would be destroyed. Now, let's look at Jesus. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ in our text today. Full of grace and truth. If the world would be instantaneously demised if any man was put in the place of God, what does it speak about our Christ? If We couldn't uphold it for a millisecond. What does it say? That there is not one second that changes under his rule. That things are faithfully carried out. That the sun rotates around the earth every single day. It's not because there are mere gravitational forces. It's because God has set them on the courses in heaven and has designed for their time to end. And the one who upholds them is the word of his power, which is Jesus Christ today, because he is full of grace and truth. If our character and nature full of hate towards God and hate towards neighbor leads to destruction, how much more is Christ abounding and overflowing in love and goodness towards us, preserving life and giving salvation to many, to the thousandth generation? See, our brother Alan, our, our elder Alan, spoke of the abounding love that you are meant to have towards your brothers this morning and your sisters Is because Christ has first abounded towards you. We love because he first loved us. And any iota of genuine love we have towards a fellow brother or sister is a mere extension of his love and his goodness. And this is why God consigned the world to judgment, to make his great name known to demonstrate the excellencies of God to the praise of his glorious grace, that he might have mercy on whom he wills and that he might have justice on whom he wills. And so we come to the culmination of God's work in history in our passage today. We see that God's purpose for sending his son is to make known the Father. Happy Father's Day. Um, And in the same breath, John, John says that The way Jesus demonstrates the glory in the Father is by being full of grace and truth. Fathers and sons, may your relationship be characterized by those two same things, grace and truth. God gets his supreme glory. God is utterly pleased and satisfied in all of his eternal purposes to do what? To dispense not one grace, not a singular good thing, But grace stacked upon grace, stacked upon grace, stacked upon grace. If all you have ever done in your life on your own is sin, you need grace times infinity. Good thing we have a God who is infinite. God created the world to be praised by you. He created the world to be praised by you. That his name would be exalted from your lips. Look at all the works he's done in history and all of the words he's spoken and the promises he's made and all of them, every single one of them, terminate in Jesus Christ who was born the God-man. Paul, when he went to the Corinthians, he didn't say we came to you saying yes and no that, he, that Jesus Christ fulfilled this promise and no, he didn't fulfill this promise. Every single promise in the word of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And when you receive his person, you receive the totality of his word. You see, that's why he's called the Logos, right? It's, it's not about how much of the Bible you can memorize. It's not about how much of it can stay in your brain and you hold on to it, you abide in, abide in it as, as if it were just another thing of works that you need to do It's You go, in Jesus is everything that I need and everything that I need is in this word. And when I receive him, I receive all of the benefits within it. Every single one. Because he comes down to exalt himself. He came down so that you might know that he is excellent. That there is no riches or entertainment or friendship or job or whatever you can imagine that even has any sort of rivalry with the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Where our system of divinity, if we were in the place of God, would be one full of hatred and works righteousness, Jesus Christ comes down out of heaven and is full of grace and truth. Where we would all rather, in our own hearts, exist under that mode of being which comes while under the law, believing that we can earn anything from God, Jesus Christ comes full of grace and truth and teaches there was no There's not even any salvation in the Mosaic Covenant. Paul calls it a ministry of condemnation. Stop going there. Stop believing that you earn anything from him. Stop believing that the result of you doing anything warrants anything from God. Stop even believing that your prayers change God's mind. Instead, receive and recognize that the act of praying in itself is the blessing that he has given you in Christ because you can bring your your everything to him in prayer. And you know, you see the insufficiency of the law of Moses when Jesus Christ comes down and he says, you have heard that it's said, but I say this unto you. Not because the law is in any way wrong or abrogated or done away with, not one jot or tittle, Shall pass away, but the law, as it was established under Moses, did not expose the truth of our hearts. It, it, it says, "Don't commit adultery," and Jesus says, "Cut your hand off if you look at a woman or whoever with lust in your heart." It's like your your eye out, or cut your hand off. And it's like you don't get that in Moses. You don't get that in it. you. Just get you've sinned. Now you're destroyed. Jesus comes down, demonstrates the height of your sin and then doesn't destroy you. The first use of the law, and I believe the most prominent use of the law, is not primarily to teach anyone how to live. The first use of the law is to reveal the exceeding sinfulness of man. And as Galatians 3.24 teaches us, the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. You see, we always get things inverted. We want to put the law first and then Christ. It's Christ first and then the law. The law, as that tutor, when met with the truth of Christ which confronts us, we are not first consoled, but rather we are further convicted. Christ's incarnation reveals to us, in opposition to the prevailing evangelical evangelical culture at large, that we as humans are so evil that it took nothing less than the incarnation and the crucifixion of the Son of God to save us. Not so that you may love yourself more, to believe that you're worthy of this love, so that you can be satisfied in you rather than him, but it's to teach you of your desperate unworthiness, my unworthiness, and Christ's excellent love to give you good to the praise of his own glory, even when you deserve nothing but condemnation. That although Jesus Christ could have come down as the terrible judge of the world, and in his holy and righteous fury declare he's done. He could have done that. He didn't have to be born of Mary and come down as a humble child full of grace and truth. He could have come down as the wrathful judge and wiped us off the face of the planet in an instant because all flesh is like grass. Here today and gone tomorrow, a vapor, a whisper, something easily forgotten. And he could have come down and said, I am holy. I am righteous. You do what I said. Dead. Hell forever. Burning. Burning and it would be righteous, and he would be glorified. But instead, what has he demonstrated to us? His love, his grace, his mercy, truth. Why? He knew that the answer to all the desires of man's heart could be found in him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that at all is not at odds with his divine purposes. That is why John had to decrease, as it says in our text, the John the Baptist, because he knew the utter insufficiency of his prophetic ministry. It was nothing compared to what Jesus Christ would do. And why Moses and the law are juxtaposed against Christ's grace and truth. They were insufficient. The prophets were insufficient. Moses was insufficient. They could not save you because they were men like you and I. Everything that man is looking for in his own self-exaltation, idolatry, sin, works righteousness, all of the results that those things lie to you to tell you that you will receive if you just do them enough are found in Christ Jesus. If you desperately desire to be a righteous person because you are plagued with guilt and shame, Jesus Christ was righteous on your behalf, and the Father accepts that righteousness as if it were your own, because it is your own, because you are his, and he is yours. If you want riches, or rather want the result of riches, satisfaction and contentment in Jesus Christ, you are given in an instant and for free something of such inestimable value that not all of the money in all of the universe that has been printed or ever will be printed could purchase. Not only that, God opens an account for you in heaven where you can add uncorruptible and undefilable treasures. If you desire peace, Jesus' name is the Prince of Peace. That's his name. He wants you to have peace. He desires for you to have peace. Peace in all things. Not peace in some circumstances, but peace on your worst day and peace on your best day. If you are single, I don't think I'm the guy, but and lonely and you desire a spouse, he calls himself the bridegroom and promises to be with you always, even unto the end of the age. If you lack wisdom, he says, ask and you will receive. And the one who is the fount of all wisdom, who created all things, will give it to you liberally, freely. Like he's got a, a tub of butter and he just slabs it on the toast as if he, he didn't have an end of it. I don't, that was something I came up on the spot. But um. If you lack anything at all, name it. Anything at all. I can point you to a place in Scripture where Jesus Christ meets that need. First, in a spiritual sense, and often in a physical sense. That's why He's the God man. He meets us in our physical needs because He first met our spiritual needs. Can't you see that if you possess Jesus Christ, you have everything you need? He who did not spare His own Son, shall He not also freely give us all things? Is he not the same Jesus Christ which satisfied Paul so much that he was lashed, stoned, beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake and said, rejoice, and again I say rejoice? I don't know if, if, if you were him. I don't think that that's the first thing I'd be saying. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. I'd be like, come on. But instead, Paul saw the utter sufficiency of Christ our Savior. That it didn't matter what he went through. He was going to do everything in his power to glorify this Christ. Because it was his, his core, his essence, his highest, his highest purpose in this life. And it is yours too, brothers and sisters who sit here in this room. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. And those two things are one and the same. To glorify God in faith is to enjoy him. And if you want to be effective for Christ our King, get this, get this into your heart, into your mind, that Christ is all satisfying, that that he is all about his self-exaltation, and his self-exaltation comes through saving you and sanctifying you and glorifying you. If you want to go out there and tear down cities and raise up cities for the name of Jesus Christ. If you want to go out there and plant a church, be a missionary, go and speak to your neighbors, get this. Know this Christ. Develop this. He's my everything at all times, no matter what. And there won't be anything that can hinder you. Not one thing. To glorify God and enjoy him forever is why we enjoy and glorify him. So what is grumbling among us. It's excluded. Complaining should be disgusting on our tongue. Discontent, malcontent. Get rid of it. Expel it with the utmost violence. Because when you are complaining and grumbling and discontent and malcontent, you want to kill God and put yourself in his place. Rather, let God be on the throne that's rest. God is good. You are not. God is wise. You're a fool. God is righteous. You're unrighteous. God is permanent. You are temporary. God has fixed the heavens in their place and nothing can change that. So stop trying and surrender to him because it's for your greatest good because it's to the utmost of his glory. Brothers and sisters, if your heart is marked with the black mildew of arrogant works righteousness and bitter discontent, with St. Anselm, I'll say, you've yet to consider the weight of your sin. Think about your sin. Think about what it did for yourself. Look to the wounds of Christ. Look to the cross upon his head. Look at the suffering that he had to go through and consider that it was you who put them there because of the sins that he would save you from. If you knew the condemnation he saved you from and the way he rescues you from sin and the overflowing, abounding, abundant, powerful, and majestic free grace he offers you, now, even in this very moment, if you suffer from the black mildew of bitterness... If you knew it, you would weep in praise. For even in the middle of your bitterness, he still does good to you. If the grace of God somehow became visible in front of us for a moment, in his glorified state, we could do nothing except what our apostle John did and fall down like dead men in worship in front of him. So repent from your heart sins, your discontent, your malice, your hatred, your I deserve better, therefore should be God mentality. Your sin has cursed you, and yet God has chosen to bless you. Repent from your worldly schemes at happiness, your secret indulgences, your petty and not-so-petty lusts, your anxiety and fear, all of what they promise, if you do them, has already been given to you in Christ Jesus. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. I'm going to end with uh, reading a portion from Philippians 2. um, And then pray for us. Beginning in verse 1 and going to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped Let's pray.